Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. That's about all I've got to, to mention at this time. 
and that's quite a lot. I, I can't wait to learn more about uh, these developments, and I'm looking forward to following them. Uh, that sounds awesome. Well, thank you. Tony, how about you? Um, unfortunately, not very much happened in my world. Um, I'm working on the sequel to Great Egyptian Magic. Um, I've got a couple of blog ideas in mind that I want to, um, to flesh out and and then upload, but it's pretty well business as usual for me. I, I don't really have anything exciting happening. Um, I had hoped to have some exciting news um, for something that's going to happen um, later on in the year, but that hasn't formally been announced yet, so um, I still have to be tight-lipped. But hopefully um, okay. next month when we all come back, I, I will have some exciting news for you. But for the moment, I'm going to have to um, live vicariously through the exciting lives of my co-panelists. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, the, the sequel to Greco-Egyptian Magic, that sounds exciting. Um, how is that coming along? Um, it's The thing is, I've, I've done workshops for... Um, basically, I'm going to expand what I have, turn it into a nine-planetary sphere system, so it's going to be a, um, a complete system of ascension. Um, wow. So it's going to be heavily based on the um, on the PGM texts, and I, I have run the workshops in the past. I have experimental results. It's just a matter of collating everything, um, and it's actually quite amazing the way the, the whole thing started to fall together. Um, to, to be honest, when I first started, I was just guided purely by intuition, but as you go on, as you start working through the spheres, you see how well everything you do. Um, ties in not just with PGM texts but with but with Hermetic texts um, and and also Gnostic texts. Um, there, there there is this underlying unity in, in yes. everything. So um, that's it, it's been an exciting journey for me, and um, it's something that I, I look forward to um, to completing. I I had hoped to just have a sequel, but I can't see how I can possibly do it. I'm basically going to have to rewrite Greco-Egyptian magic, so it's going to be twice as long. Wow. Um, I, I can't really have a, a sequel and have two volumes, because otherwise you'd be jumping from book to book, and it just it just wouldn't be practical. So I'm going to have to um, come up with one huge tome, um, combining everything together. So, um, yeah, that's basically what, I, what I'm working on at the moment, trying to combine what, I, what I've done in, in, um, in, in workshops over the years. That sounds very exciting, and it sounds like we're playing in some of the same playgrounds. Uh, I've been uh, uh, parousing the Gnostic material and contemplating uh, it and playing with it, uh, especially with the Archons and the Aeons, and tying that yes. to the planetary spheres and ascension uh, also. So uh, I, I can't wait to read uh, what uh, you're going to write about it. Yeah, and it, it will be a theurgic system of ascension, so it's going to tie in with, with what we've been talking about. It's been a, a major interest of mine and um, something that I'm, I'm really looking forward to finishing. But these things always seem to take me longer than they do others. Some people can just, it just seem to be able to crank books out. It takes me a lot longer than it does others. Um, but anyway, it's just the way it goes. That, that is awesome. Thank you. And Brandy? 
you know, and uh, Tony, I, I reassure you that it takes me a long time to, <laughs> to write books as well. So <laughs> I often think that, oh, my gosh, other people write so much faster. But we're writing um, things that are, are dense. This is what people keep telling me. So so there you go. Um, so what I'm doing, I'm writing for my Pathios blog just now, and I'm, I'm working on writing like one um, one piece a week. Uh, just now, I'm, I'm about to, to post the one that I'm going to do for Easter, so you can you can certainly follow that. It's uh, Papio Star and Snake. Um, the Lima is a Living Tradition is the blog, and if you just put Randy Williams Star and Snake in your web browser, you'll find it. And then um, I'm preparing for my presentations this summer, so I'm headlining two festivals this summer. I'm headlining Babylon Rising in June, and I'm headlining um, Sacred Harvest Fest in August. And I will put that on my blog and on my webpage this week, I promise. So I'll, I'll get that information up. Uh, very awesome. I linked so that's to a, your that, that's blog recently. Oh, great. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. And, um, you know, if we're, if we're moving on to another uh, topic, I loved what Bruce said. I'm glad I was on mute at the time because I, I um, shouted and clapped my hands when he, he said he was, Bruce, when you said you were um, working on the uh, Jung's work um, as a theurgic text, because I think this is a really fruitful place to, to explore and talk about. I treat the Book of the Law as a theurgic text. I think Crowley did too, right? So um, the Lima oh, is a theurgic system. And, and yeah, yeah. And if you look at um, if you look at revealed texts, it's very interesting to to look at how many there are and and how they've affected the world, right? So there's um, there was the vision of Parmenides. Um, there's the division the of John of Revelations, which actually informs a, a lot of Thelema and informs Crowley's work. And and Jung's work was was on that list. So um, Hercules, do, do you think we might be able to to go and talk about that a little bit? Yes, that would be that would be incredibly awesome. Go ahead. So so Bruce, what um do do you have things that you can share with us about your analysis of Jung? Uh sure. I mean, um when he um you know, Jung had some visions um I think around 1913 they began and um you know, he he had visions of Europe covered in blood and um he thought he was going crazy. And um, later realized these were prophetic visions about uh, World War One, but um, he developed this uh, practice that uh, is known in the Jungian uh, um, uh, community now as active imagination, and it's basically a theurgical process. And so he, um, over a series of years, um, made these um, these uh, for in his case they're mostly descents uh, into sort of an underworld where he encountered various sorts of, uh, of, um, of spirits, beings, um, that were uh, related to him in various ways. And he wrote this all down in a series of notebooks that uh, were called the uh, Black Books, a series of uh, spirit journals is what I would call them. That's what they're sometimes called uh, in, um, um, in uh, this business. But, um, and then he... Um, he realized their importance, and he began to he, he commissioned a large uh, volume bound in red leather to be manufactured, and he began transcribing them into this large volume, uh, which is known as the, the Red Book. And um, these, um, you know, so he, he did this with really quite beautiful calligraphy, and he illustrated it with art depicting his visions and mandala figures and so forth. Um, 
And for a number of years, he, he continued this process. Um, and um, this was kind of his private record of um, his explorations. And um, he said, uh, this is the source of all of his ideas. So really all of Jungian psychology and all that has come that's based on that has come out of these theurgical operations. He called it his most dangerous experiment because he, he really felt initially like he was in some sense testing his own sanity. And um, he later came to realize that that, that um, was nothing uh, insane about what he was doing, that he was, that it was actually a spiritual practice. And so uh, this book was um, only shown to a few people, a few of his closest um, uh, confidants, um, many people didn't even know about it, and it was locked up in a Swiss bank vault for, um, I believe, 50 years, um, more than 50 years, I think. Um, no, about 50 years, I guess, because it was when he, when he died. And um, finally, 10 years ago, uh, 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 they got permission to publish the book in a, in a really very beautiful facsimile uh, with an English translation. And so um, we've, we've, for 10 years now, we've been able to see the results of this, uh, of this theurgical experiment that Jung did back in the early parts of the 20th century. And it is very Gnostic, you know, that as, as many people know, uh, Jung had a real affinity for Gnosticism. And, um, you know, this is uh, where it comes from, because he was in his journeys, he was meeting many Gnostic deities and other um, um, beings with kind of a Gnostic flavor. And so, um, you know, it's just fascinating. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's important historically for Jungian psychology, but I think it's also important because it shows us the, that the impact, the large impact that these theurgical operations can have. So, again, Jung said everything he did came out of this few years, really, about five years that he was doing these active theurgical types of operations. Later, he, he, he worked more uh, using alchemy, really, again, with, from sort of a theurgical perspective. But at this time, it was more a kind of um, um, mental journeying, uh, not guided imagination, but unguided imagination, you know, following where the, uh, where the spirits led him. And so I think it shows, you know, kind of a model for what all of us could do. You know, we can, we can undergo these uh, theurgical processes and part of coming back from a descent or an ascent is then to manifest what you do in the physical world and so part of this manifestation for Jung was the creation of the red book but it can also be manifesting in terms of actions on earth uh, manifesting it of course in terms of artwork or literature um, or uh, any sorts of other things that brings it from the spirit world back into uh, material reality. And so I think, um, you know, I think it's, uh, it's very important as an example is, as uh, I'm not sure exactly what the, the title of my piece is going to be, but basically the idea is, and in fact, Jungian psychologists have said this, yes, Jung's red book is great, but we should all be writing our own, Jung, our own red books. We should all be doing these theoretical operations and compiling our own insights because so many of them are personal. It's not, it's not, some of it's universal, but some of it's also personal. And this is a record of our communications with the gods. It's our own books of revelation. That is uh, very interesting. I haven't read Young's Red Book, 
Um, but uh, I recently started publishing some of my own uh, experiences with uh, uh, katevasis and anevasis, you know, descent and uh, uh, ascension. And uh, one of my pieces is going to be published in an anthology uh, sometime in the next uh, couple of months where uh, I talk about the dream realms and the entities there. And uh, uh, I speak about one uh, being in particular. So that is, it's very interesting that you said the things you said, because now I need to seek out the red book <laughs> and see what Young did. Yeah, I would I would really encourage it. It's 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 really quite Hello? And oh, if I, I guess we can, lost him. Uh, I thought it was me. Bruce, are you there? Yeah, I think I may have lost the connection for a second. Okay. You know, I was I was also going to follow up on Brandy's remark that that when um, you know that that there are a variety of these um, um, channeled or revealed or theurgical texts that have been produced over the years, and and some of them are very personal, and some of them have had a larger effect. Two uh, or or several uh, ones we might consider more uh, new agey are the uh, Rantia books. And the um, Course in Miracles, which uh, many people are familiar with, both of those, and they were essentially also um, texts that came from a theurgical type of operation, not necessarily in the Neoplatonic tradition, but but still using many of the same principles. And, and of course, the Book of the Law, I think, is of course another uh, you know really important example of this. We have two Urantia book uh, shows on uh, the Olympian podcast. So uh, um, that is a very interesting perspective on the Urantians. Uh, they're, they're a fascinating uh, bunch of people, and we have a traditional Urantia uh, book uh, program, and we have a, a heretical uh, Urantia book uh, program, and then we have uh, them on each other's shows, and they all get along uh, wonderfully. <laughs> so it's a very interesting thing. And the, uh, the heretic branch of the Urantia book um, started bringing forth the Greek gods and uh, correspondences with the Greek gods. So that's been very interesting also. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, these are living theosophies uh, um, as, as it was in ancient times. Uh, um, th- these things are still going on today. And uh, ever since this material started emerging again uh, from hiding, um, and Dion Fortune wrote a book uh, um that spoke about her finding that this information that she was getting through her magical training, you could tap into it. And it seems to be um, a state of mind or a state of being where if you tap into it, you've tapped into theosophy and uh, it'll start uh, coming through you. I think that's right. It's a matter of tuning into these energies and then uh, it, it becomes easier with practice too. Wow. Tony, anything you'd like to add to what Bruce and Brandy have said? Um, You've actually preempted what I was going to say. The thing that jumped out at me most from what Bruce was saying was Carl Jung's adjuration to produce your own red book. The thing Mm -hmm. is that so many religions have started off with a revelation from some charismatic character who has um, a revelatory experience. But once you, fundamentalism creeps in, 
if you accept that that particular revelation of gospel, people start referring to it and everything else. I think it's far more important to find your own system of spirituality. I mean, that is the, the difference between religion and spirituality, that you um that you find your own way, you work out you work out your own system, you produce your own red book or book of shadows or your own personal grimoire to put into terms that people may be a, a little bit more familiar with. And that way what you're doing becomes a living personal tradition, something that you can do and then um, you can then interact with others who have their own traditions and perhaps look for commonalities. Um, it's all very, very exciting stuff. I can't wait to see what um, what Bruce comes up with. I can't either. Randy, well, thank you. A... And, oh, go ahead, Bruce. Well, I was just going to uh, add to what uh, Tony said. You know, I think that when you realize that really everybody can can produce their own red book or can essentially have their own revelations of this sort, uh, that also gives you a certain humility that you realize that, you know, well, okay, um, mine's not so special. Mine is just mine. And uh, as Tony said, we you can, you can compare notes with other people. But, um, you know, you also are more inclined to respect other people's insights uh, as well. So I think it's, it's important. It's one way of avoiding that sort of fundamentalism. It's like, well, there's nothing so special about this revelation. You know, we can, we can all get them if we work at it. That's very true. And the, and the punchline of uh, your, the realization that you're divine is that so is everyone and everything else. <laughs> So uh, it, it is a experience. I'm a god and so are you. <laughs> yes. Namaste. <laughs> yes, namaste. Namaste. <laughs> now, uh, yeah, last I'll pick time... up on the... Um, uh, Go ahead. Uh, um, did, did you mind if I, if I went, um, Hercules? I'm um, sorry. I, I wanted to pick up on the idea of the... Uh, I wanted to pick up on the idea of the Book of the Law, actually, okay. just um, pass through the, the season where we celebrate the three days of the writing of the Book of the Law. It was 100 years ago, and, and that's long enough for some fundamentalist to, fundamentalism to have developed around that book, mm-hmm. right, that there was a revelation and that it, it, it shows us something that's happening in the world. And I wrote three blog posts um, about each of the three books, kind of exploring that, in particular exploring the third book, which is very warlike, and it, it, um, it predicts – it was right before World War I, right? So in the third book, there's a, 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 a thought from um, Rahur Kweet that um, I will give you a war engine, and Crowley in his life came to interpret that in different ways. He thought that that was a real physical thing. He thought that was, that was going to happen, that Rahur Kweet was um, declaring a, a new kingdom, the, the new aeon, um, just as, as um, Jesus was um, declaring a, a heaven on earth, a new, a new kingdom on earth, right? Um, and, mm-hmm. and so Crowley interpreted, I will give you a war engine as the, the tank in World War One, And then in World War Two, he said, okay, maybe I was wrong. Maybe it was the, the nuclear nuclear bomb. And maybe that's not such a good thing, right? And so we, <laughs> he began to reevaluate that idea. And my my thought, um, my, my proposition was to kind of treat this as more in, a, in an Advaitic way and say, you know, when, when we're looking at the, the book of the law, we're not looking at a prediction about what's happening out there in the world, but really what's happening in, in us. We can interpret this in a in 
in a more symbolic way, right? Um, and I, I think that that helps to move us away from declaring war on each other and 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 perpetuating that kind of idea. Uh, but it's it's very it's very interesting how how literal these books can be taken and how they strike people. You know, there there are there are um, revelations that people make all the time that that come and go, um, and then there. And, and and then there are those that, that actually have some legs that people respond to. I mean, when you think about how long ago the book of Revelations was written, it's amazing that it had the kind of impact that it, it does. We all still know all the images, right, from the, the, the mm-hmm. apocalyptic images, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and that sort of thing. So So the message that we can all write our own book, I think that is a really – really important message for us all to continue to push because it it does return power to the individual and it does help us to to understand that um how how to live um with each other in harmony how not to give away our power and how not to to fight with each other i think that that's a that's really important oh i would agree uh, and uh, uh these uh, personal revelations uh have been uh minimized a lot of times by the pagan community, uh, unverified personal gnosis. And uh, I've always seen great value in them. You know, and it's interesting too. I I have, I have an idea um, that isn't fully articulated. And when I, when I get there, I'll, I'll write a blog post. But the idea is that we, we treat revelation differently now than we did um, 150 years ago, because they, when the age of reason elevated reason to the place um, that that used to be occupied by revelation, right? It used to be that gods would come and talk to you, or God would come and talk to you, or priests would come and say, "Here, God came to me, and here's here's the tablets that have our laws," right? Um, the age of reason came along and said, "No, human reason is what we need to to guide us," and we devalued revelation. And I think that some form of evaluating revelation with reason is where we need to to um, to sort of steer our path to understand that revelation is also important information and valid information, but also not you know continue to go oh and by the way this was really real and and um, you know uh, there was going to be a, a new um, a new kingdom and it's going to be a Thelema kingdom and all the the countries in the world are going to convert to Thelema you know that that being that literal is not the direction that um, that the revelation takes us. And so I, I kind of want, um, I, I'd love to hear what other people have to think in terms of the relationship of revelation and of reason and how they can coexist. It's a, I, I'll take a crack at that. Uh, it, that's a very difficult yeah. thing. Uh, I remember I was very uh, sensitive as a, uh, a child in terms of being able to pick up on uh, uh, things that most people couldn't uh, pick up on, uh, mostly because they didn't believe in it. And I grew up uh, Greek, and uh, my uh, family came from a mountain uh, you know, village on an island. So um, it was very superstitious, to say the least. So things like Kalikanzari, uh, which are a type of goblin and nymphs and uh, all these other things existed, and there were lots of stories about them. And uh, whatever it is that kind of organizes your reality incorporated those things uh, into my consciousness. But I learned very quickly uh, that after childhood, people get very uncomfortable if you talked about those things. So I had to learn to edit Everything that I wanted to say, I could no longer speak as to my direct experience. Uh, And that was comparable to pretending you're blind or deaf or something, because there's a whole bunch of information. 
uh, that you can't share. So you have to uh, kind of like take out color when you're talking to somebody because they can't perceive colors or they can't see anything. Um, so that was uh, that was very difficult, but it taught me that people who live in that bandwidth of uh, perception, uh, logic was something very important to them because it helped make sense of the world, and it was very successful in making sense of the world in very many ways. But if you had other uh, senses, whether you cultivated them or were born with them open or you know whatever your culture allowed you to have them. Uh, then uh, there are there is information that doesn't fit into the logic model. But if the information is not believed or not respected, then it'll never fit into the the model that the person is uh, um, you know keeping. Like I'll, I'll give one example uh, from like uh, study. Um, I studied a lot of theosophy, especially when I was a teen and I was in a the theosophical uh, group. And uh, I studied uh, a lot of uh, occult writings and, and so forth, and also folklore. So when people were first talking about Neanderthals and uh, whether uh, Neanderthals were uh, genetically compatible with uh, uh, Cro-Magnon, uh, by which they meant us, uh, people were saying that according to the geneticists, um, there's no compatibility, that the Neanderthals were another branch. And uh, my point was that there's a lot of stories about Neanderthals um, cohabiting with Cro-Magnons and uh, giving birth to children in folklore and in mythology. So I, I tended to believe that it was a possibility. And only many years later did that possibility become orthodox uh, science. So I believe in science, but science too can be wrong. In fact, science has a history of being wrong. And I'm not anti-science, but I also believe that there are other ways of getting information uh, than the ones that science usually allows. That was a bit wordy, but <laughs> I think they can coexist, but uneasily. Yeah, could I maybe add something to that? Sure. So I think, you know, to my mind, two of the important uh, things to take away from this is, first of all, as we all understand, I think, uh, symbols are really the medium of communication with with the gods. And so uh, I think um, we have to uh, assume that any communications we're having are symbolic. And, and that, you know, if you keep that in mind, that helps prevent a literal uh, or a fundamentalist sort of interpretation of, of whatever it is you've, you've learned. Um, so we're invited to kind of look at the meaning behind the meaning, that that's the, that's the way to kind of get up beyond the earth to, um, to the more spiritual realms. So uh, I think that's one aspect. But the other aspect in terms of, of, of reason, I would say whenever we're doing theurgy, um, we can't set aside our critical faculties, you know? And so I think of if, if I'm communicating with some spirit, a God or some other, a diamond or some other sort of spirit that yes, this is an important being. Uh, this may be an authoritative being, um, but I've still got my critical faculties. So if um, I don't understand what I'm learning or what I'm hearing from that being, um, or if I disagree with it, 
I'm going to uh, say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense, or no, that's I'm not going to do that, or that's not possible, and um, you know, and then and engage in a in a conversation about it. And so I think this is, and this is actually an important part also of um, the active imagination process that Jung taught about is that um, you don't give up your ethical standpoint. So you know, we're beings now that live, we're living in the 21st century. Um, we have notions of, of, uh, of what's right and wrong and, and how our culture should operate. And um, we, uh, we don't throw those away when we, when we engage in theurgy. So I think, you know, it's uh, just like anything else. You don't just uh, uncritically accept whatever you see or hear. You, uh, you think about it, and if necessary, and this is the, really the scientific method, you do further investigation. You go back and you look again or you do further uh, exploration. And I think that's the way we, we can, um, you know, partially avoid some of the traps of, of fundamentalism or too much literalism, which I think is really the, uh, you know, this is the, the, the fatal flaw of so many different spiritual traditions is to, uh, is to get caught into that, that kind of um, um, literalist kind of interpretation. Um, that would be my recommendation. Yeah, those are, those are great points. I'm going to um, hop in again. Um, in, in a previous uh, conversation we had during the forum, uh, you and Tony had talked about like uh, verification, getting verification. So um, in my present work that I'm doing, um, I've asked for verification. And uh, the verification of what I'm getting in my own you know, internal or, or semi-external or external experiences uh, usually pops up in the way of synchronicities. Uh, and then I have uh, one of the uh, um, Urantia book um, groups, the one that's uh, in tune with the Greek gods. Uh, I'll often get a confirmation through them where they'll tell me something that's the exact same thing that I've been getting. Uh, and then I have Very an old friend who's a, 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 a magician, uh, not the rabbit out of the hat magician, uh, but you know, a mage. Uh, he lives in Chicago, and he calls every now and then with uh, messages and information. And lately, I've been getting verifications through his like casual conversation. So I've been relying more and more uh, on uh, um, those to guide me. Of course, I still question things, and if I'm comfortable with something, I'm not going to do it. Or if I don't agree with it, I'm not going to do it or not incorporate it into what I'm doing yet. Uh, but uh, uh, that was very helpful to me. And again, I thank both of you for that uh, again. But I found that helpful in kind of reconciling things and moving forward with things. Great. 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 Tony? Okay, I think. Uh, Brandy? You know, I heard you say something really cool, which was that you wrote something that's about to be published. And I'm yes. so excited to see that you are you are writing. I've I thought um long thought that, that I would love to, to see you take some of your really wonderful ideas and start sharing them with people in that forum too. So um can do you think you can tell us a little bit more about your anthology, what what you're doing? Oh sure. Um uh, I'll, I'll start at the beginning, but I'll make it, I'll make it short. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I had uh, a bunch of authors that I admired. 
besides the ancient authors and the you know the, the Blavatsky and Manly Palmer Hall and so forth, and it was like Brad Steger and Tim Beckley and uh, um, you know those guys. So uh, I interviewed uh, a few of them on my podcast over the years, and now I'm one of that band of writers who's been contributing to these sometimes lurid occult anthologies. So I published uh, chapters in like 10 of them so far. I think nine have been published and released, and the other ones can be published in a a few uh, months. And I told myself I'd do 12 of those before I, I tackled my own book, but I started tackling my own book now. Um, but uh, there, there are different aspects of uh, um, Greco-Olympian um, perception, and it's my personal experiences with uh, different states of being. So, for instance, in this one, um, I talked about dreams, and I focused on uh, uh, an entity called the Moor, or, or Arapas, or, or Arapis in uh, Greek. And he's kind of like the Freddy Krueger uh, of uh, Greece. Uh, and uh, he is known uh, on several islands, but I believe that the story originated on uh, Lemnos, where I'm from, um, because there he's less folkloric and, and more um, human. But it was a human who was sacrificed to guard a treasure. They used to bury their uh, coins and jewels and uh, things uh, uh, and then spill their own blood or spill the blood of an animal. Uh, but he was uh, sacrificed. And then later on, he started popping up in people's dreams and promising them treasure, uh, which led to tragedy. So uh, the... Um, the, the piece that I published was that, that, sto- that particular story, but I started giving a lot of information about uh, um, what I'm calling Olympian shamanism uh, and the different uh, states of being. And uh, even though there's a world tree in Olympian mythology, it's not the same as the tree of life or the uh, uh, Yggdrasil, where the worlds are pretty different and defined. Uh, in the Greek system, everything blends into like one uber world and it's kind of fuzzy and shifts. And uh, if you're going to navigate it, you have to take that into consideration. So I give a lot of background on the type of entities that you could find in uh, dream that you could find on the hypnagogic and the hypnopompic. If they didn't have mythical names, I just gave them you know, names uh, that uh, were descriptive of what they did or, you know, uh, but it, it's kind of like an abridged uh, a version of uh, the uh, book that I'm currently working on, uh, which is uh, um, going to be Olympian shamanism. I developed a bunch of workshops and I've held them over the years in uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Um, so now I want to like digest all those experiences, look at my notes and like organize them. Uh, so thank you for asking. That's really exciting. Yes. Uh, we'll be looking forward to that. Um, yep. And Brad Steger and uh, Tim Beckley, uh, they're in these anthologies. So it was like a, wi- a dream come true <laughs> in that uh, here I am in the same book with these guys, you know, who inspired me to, you know, keep investigating beyond the physical when I was growing up. So um, it, it, it was cool to get uh, published in actual books rather than in like zines and things. Uh, but uh, being in their company, uh, that, that meant a lot to me as well. Like talking to you guys means a lot to me because uh, uh, you are the lights in uh, a theurgy in our modern uh, times. And uh, each of you through your work 
uh, is taking that golden chain uh, that Brandy spoke about in uh, her book, and uh, you're bringing it forward into the future, and uh, you're breaking some of the um, ethnic type of uh, um, shell that's been around it, and you're making it a lot more universal, and that's what it needs to be. It needs to be more universal, needs to be more accessible. Uh, yes, respect the ancient roots, and yes, use the ancient uh, terminology, and that's very important in understanding what theurgy is all about. Uh, but you guys are, are, are evolving theurgy to meet our needs, and right now the world needs theurgy. I totally agree. And it's your turn to ask okay. a question. <laughs> I'm sorry? I said I totally agree with you, and it's your turn to ask a question. <laughs> okay. Um, when uh, Jean-Louis was here last time, we talked about calendars, uh, because Jean-Louis uses them extensively in his work. Um, I happen to use uh, calendars a lot, too, and I think that's the Herculean... Hercules, can yeah. I interrupt you? Um, I was having problems with my phone earlier on. I just wanted to address one issue before we move on to calendars. Yeah. You were talking about um, the accuracy of, of folklore. Um, just to illustrate that, um, the Australian Aboriginals are actually quite fascinating, and their folklore appears to be an incredibly accurate record of, of ancient history in Australia. Like, for instance, one of the tribes has a record of, it, it's a story that they've been retelling for 230 generations. They talk about a volcanic wow. explosion 7,000 years ago. Now, the thing is, Australia is not volcanically active now. It hasn't been for hundreds of years, but thousands of years ago it was. Basically, they actually have a record in their legends of one of these volcanoes blowing up. And this is a story that goes back 7,000 years, and they have preserved this story. Um, a lot of people think that once, once a particular legend has been repeated for more than 1,000 years, you've got Chinese whispers coming and things get distorted. But in their case, they seem to have preserved everything intact. Um, there are also other legends that they have about the coastline in Queensland actually stretching out as far as the Great Barrier Reef. The Great Barrier Reef used to be part of the coastline. It no longer is part of the coastline, but they remember that time and that has been passed on. So there are people who say that they're the most, they keep the most accurate oral records out of any culture. So I totally, I can totally um, understand folklore giving an indication of things that happened in the, in the dim dark past and folklore actually preserving memories of things that have happened in the past. So you brought up the um, example of, of Neanderthals and um, and Cro-Magdon man and the like. Um, it's quite possible that those that those legends um, uh, are remembered as, as stories of trolls and the like these days. You know, that's, yes. that's, that's all I want to say. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, folklore does preserve, as do uh, some records. Uh, I'm, I'm, I might be misremembering a little bit, but uh, I remember reading that uh, the pygmies um, gave accounts of uh, traveling in ships throughout the world at one point uh, of their history. Uh, and there are stories of uh, uh, diminutive, uh, dark-skinned uh, um, entities 
uh, in a lot of the places that they described uh, visiting, uh, including uh, Britain and South America. So that that was very interesting to find in uh, pygmy lore. And uh, uh, I believe in the Vendidad, which is a Zoroastrian uh, text on uh, um, like fighting uh, demons or evil spirits, there are scattered accounts of the coming of the Ice Age. Uh, and people mm-hmm. moving underground in underground shelters. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, information in scattered places that uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it gave an accurate representation of what the world was actually like. I remember coming across a photograph many years ago from South America of a face with distinctly Negroid features. Yes. So, the, the old yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So it, 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 I think it's, you know, we like to think of the ancients as being incapable of traveling around the world because we've only had that technology for a few hundred years. But it seems that they that they were um, very accomplished world travelers. Uh, yes, yeah, they, that's they really true. And uh, yeah, the, the Basque people have, um, have have stories about um, fishing, and it appears that for for hundreds of years they were fishing off the coast of of America of, of um, the east, the east coast, um, and then they stopped doing that when when Euro- Europeans uh, other Europeans started doing more traveling. But um, the the um, seafaring peoples have been able to travel um, much more extensively than we we give them credit for. Um, yes. And I, I think in in the theurgic activism um, sense, I, I think that part of that is because we we had this idea that you know we were the the greatest people, the you're, you're, white Europeans were the greatest people, and we were the people who invented you know travel, and we we really we really you know are are uh, newcomers on on the world scene. Um, and I, I wanted to say too about the native peoples that the native peoples here in the the Pacific Northwest also have memories that go back to the the Ice Age, and so do so do people in Japan. They have they have memories that go back to the Ice Age. So so um, in, in addition to you know Revelation, we also have this this oral traditions that that we've devalued um, because of our our value of the written word um, alongside of it. So I think that's a really great call out, uh, Hercules to. To focus on that and to focus on the connections between oral tradition and theurgy, and and I kind of you know you said something I, I I'm I'm thinking about your your growing up in in Greece and I hear sometimes on the on the net I, I read web pages from people who say that there is a, a continuity of practice that you can point to that you could call theurgic. So and and you talked about the the folklore and your island and and how um how that continues and it's really clear if you if you travel in Greece that there's there's a a memory of the gods and a memory of um of how you relate to at least the the um the energies of the land but have you yourself seen any any um evidence of a, a continuity of of actual theurgic practice as well there 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 are a lot of uh, different traditions like uh, there are are magi. Uh, who are you know that's where you get the word uh, mage from or, you know from the or magus um but it it's kind of like fuzzy what Maigi were when uh, I was in Greece uh, last time uh and I wandered around uh, like Caminha which is like a, a mountain village town um and uh, um I had a beard and they didn't know that I was uh, Greek or from that island or they could understand what they were saying and they were trying to like figure me out uh, so uh, the, the conversation went something like, well, you know, he doesn't look like a priest, um, so he must be a wizard. Uh, and the reason why I was <laughs> either a 
priest or wizard has had long hair and a beard, and I guess that he had many other people who were up there, and I definitely wasn't a priest. Um, but there are a lot of uh, spells uh, I remember. I remember one time I got uh, very sick, and the doctor sent me to a wise woman who massaged uh, my, uh, uh, my neck and head with olive oil uh, and uh, was reciting what sounded like arithmetic. Uh, and there were the jumping over the bonfires, you know, the three bonfires that you jump over. There were Seder uh, traditions. Um, when I was uh, young, I remember witnessing one of those from the window. You couldn't go outside because the Seders would uh, beat you up. It was people dressed in uh, uh, like uh, wool leggings and mm-hmm. pants and things. But that's a very old tradition. As I got older and I researched things, that, that goes back to classical times, you know, with the Lemnian uh, Seders. Um, and there wasn't theurgy as we understand it now or as it was understood during classical times, but there were people who did uh, magical operations. Um, and some of it was learned. Like, for instance, uh, on my mother's side, we had Costas Keramidas, and he was a, like a ceremonial magician. And uh, there were stories of him. He liked thwarting the Nazis. So there were, you know, Costas Keramidas thwarts the Nazis uh, uh, stories with his magic and he gets locked up and somehow you know, he convinces them to let him go and, and, uh, and things like that. Uh, there are some of the, the chants and the spells uh, survive in terms of the actual wording and some of them do not. Um, and uh, part of the reason is that the Lemnians and other Greeks, um, they, they want to pass things on at their, at their death. But that doesn't take into account senility, sickness, uh, misremembering, yeah. forgetting all that. So a lot of stuff is, is lost. Um, like I remember witnessing the ceremony when I was uh, younger a few times in which they um, had clothes on charcoal and they would chant certain things and the clothes would explode as if on their word. You know, they, they get to a certain intonation and the clothes would explode, you know, on the, on the piece of charcoal. Um and um, another relative on my um, father's side, uh, Menandros, uh, he had the evil eye. There's a very strong belief in the evil eye in uh, Greece. Uh, so there's a story about uh, Menandros that one of the shepherds wanted him to, like, give the evil eye to one of his competitors. So he invited Menandros to show him this really impressive flock of sheep. So, uh, you know, it was early in the morning and Menandros came and uh, they waited and waited and waited and Menandros was getting uh, impatient. So, um, you know, the guy was, you know, he didn't want Menandros to leave because he wanted to curse uh, his uh, competitor. Uh, so he was looking and then he thought he saw his competitor coming from far away and he goes, look, look, there he is. Just wait a little while. He'll be here. And Menandros says, wow, you have great eyesight. And that gave the guy... <laughs> Very bad eyesight uh, as a result of that. So his, um, his scheme uh, um, backfired. Um, and so his was kind of like something he just had. You know, it was a, a faculty he had. And I remember growing up, too, the reality is, is, is slightly different. Like, for instance, they believed that Americans were stupid or spiritually blind uh, regarding the evil eye because everybody knows the evil eye is real. You know, there's like tons of evidence, you know, spending many generations and it's obviously very much at work in their life. 
so they would think that people who didn't believe it were something was wrong with them, or they were like uh, uh, spiritually retarded, like Americans, you know, <laughs> or people from you know some other places. So, uh, but nothing, nothing. There were people who were studied. Uh, who were called like yatri or doctors or philosophy philosophers um, who who studied uh, magic and sometimes were called uh, magi. Like uh, somebody wrote a book called the Magos of Strovolos. Uh, they gave a, a pretty good rendition of like an educated uh, doctor uh, magician. But I never witnessed anything, uh, you know, in terms of the ancient. Uh, um, stuff, unless it was because people just did it. It was something that they did as part of their traditions, and uh, the Greek Orthodox Church didn't necessarily discourage them from doing these things. So uh, within my lifetime, I witnessed many of these like folk, uh, um, like fam trads, as they were called later, uh, type of things, or, or folkloric uh, practices. Uh, Hercules? Yes. Um, I wonder if uh, you observed any practices in the Greek Orthodox Church that had uh, seemed to have been inherited, especially from uh, Platonism. That's a whole other inquiry, and we could do like like a show about that. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yes, the Greek Orthodox Church preserved a lot of uh, things from antiquity and incorporated them. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of the uh, information that the Greek Orthodox Church has on the worlds uh, between our earth and, and heaven or the underworld uh, are, you know, basically the you know, the, the lore of demons that was pretty common uh, during, uh, you know, the, after uh, when the calendars changed uh, from uh, B.C. to A.D., uh, they were they preserved a lot of the um, religion and the magical practice of uh, the time, and they obscured its origin. Um, but they retained all that, so that lived on in the church. It lived on the Catholic Church too. So, like like in uh, England, there's like Saint Bridget or Saint Bride. Uh, the Greeks had Saint Odysseus. <laughs> <laughs> And Hercules became the, the, the glorious physician because at the time, uh, health spas uh, were very popular uh, and a lot of healing practices were dedicated to Hercules. Uh, I believe it was Luke the physician. Uh, right now, I'm just, my brain's uh, kind of tired. Uh, but uh, there was graffiti behind uh, um, a Hercules statue that said, you know, oh, uh, look, look at my poor fate that I'm now, you know, considered a doctor. Because um, uh, that's what they swallowed him up as, and uh, took all those aspects and put them into Saint Luke. Well, I think it's important to you know be able to look at all of these different traditions, you know, because we're filling in pieces when we uh, try and uh, reconstruct theurgical practices. And I think you know, looking at um, practices, for instance, in the Greek Orthodox Church or in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, as well as folk practices, as and as well as later traditions like the Theosophical traditions, mm-hmm. can all uh, you know give us ideas about how to uh, um, fill in and also improve on some of these uh, ancient practices. I agree. Uh, they're all worth study. And uh, again, I'm not a, a Greek Orthodox uh, person anymore, uh, but a lot of my family is. Uh, and Greeks uh, Greeks have this belief that um, there's uh, like a paradise for uh, virtuous pagans, uh, 
And uh, since I was very young, my family said that I'm I'm heading for Olympus. But because we're Greek, we can visit different heavens. Uh, so that's what we permitted. So, uh, <laughs> very convenient. You know, as you were talking to Hercules, I was thinking about a trip that I took to Thessaloniki at this time uh-huh. of year. I did a a, a Greek dance. Um, workshop with a, a woman who does a, a lot of Greek dance. Her name is Yvonne Hunt, and she's she's written a book about Greek dance. So we went to Thessaloniki, like right around Easter. You have her book? Yeah. She's my, yes, she's my dance teacher. Antiquity, yes. Yeah. Yeah, she knows her stuff. And so uh, um, so she took us to the village. She took us to um, to a little village outside of uh, 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 Thess. And then um, we were there during the during this the season, so we went to the um, the village. I think it was St. Helens, where the Anastinaria um, do the fire walking in the fall. But they also do this spring ritual where they go and um, hit the ground with the plow, and all the all and the men, you know, uh, you know, do the the posturing and the shouting at each other, and then you know everybody gets together and dances late 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 in the evening, mm-hmm. right? But there there um, I, I also was seeing on television that all over Greece there are all these customs that are like the one you described where the people are, are wearing leggings or they're wearing bells and they're dancing and jumping up and down and, and sort of doing all these springtime celebrations. So it, it, I got the impression that there's just an awful lot of that kind of, of survival, folkloral survival of, of, um, of, of ancient, ancient religion. Yes, and uh, up until recently, they uh, they didn't like talking about it to outsiders because they it, they believed that it, it showed them to be low class or uneducated. Uh, but then, you know, if you weren't an outsider, you heard all these stories like uh, uh, the Kalikanzari, which are it's usually translated goblin, but it's like an extensive folklore. They're kind of like uh, uh, dwindling nature spirits or lesser gods, uh, and. Uh, um, people say they don't believe in them, but again, when you know them, they'll tell you tons of stories of the Kalikadzari. And nymphs, too, are phenomenally frequently encountered uh, even uh, today, and you'll hear nymph tales uh, fairly uh, often. So, yes, these traditions are alive, and now they're being uh, preserved by folklore societies, which I think is incredibly awesome because one of my concerns was when that generation like uh, died out, these stories would be mostly lost. Um, as has happened before, you've preempted what I wanted to say, but there, there's a fascinating text. It's almost a hundred. It is a fascinating text. It's almost a hundred years old. It's called Greek Religion and Its Survivals. It's by Walter okay. Woodburn Height. And he actually talks about survivals of Greek religion within modern Greek society. And the example which he cites is that of the nymphs, which you, which you just mentioned. And he points out that in, the, um, in little villages and towns, the older women will go off to, to, to streams and bodies of water and, and venerate the nymphs. And his yeah. theory was that, that the nymphs were probably the first entities to be worshipped. They would have been worshipped before the gods. And so they're the most pernicious and so, like, while the, while the gods have waned in importance as the Greek Orthodox Church took over, um, the nymphs are still there um, because they're, they're, they're so obvious. If you only um, open your, your heart and mind to them, you, you, you pick up on them in, in, in bodies of water. So it's just interesting yeah. that the, 
example which he cites is that of the nymphs, and you just happened to talk about it. So you beat me to the punch again. <laughs> I apologize. Um, no, no, no. I think it's great. It's great. We're all sort of thinking along the same lines. I might have that book. I'm trying to spot it now. I'm near my uh, my uh, library, but I I, it's, I had it with a green cover, I believe. And I had another one that was similar uh, that talked about vampires and uh, um, Greek other Greek folklore beliefs. And I believe that had nymph in the in the title too. Now, after we finish tonight, I'm gonna look for all these books and uh, uh, and look well, the, them. Well, the, 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 the one that I have has a navy blue cover. And uh, and it and it was written in the um or published in the early in the early 1920s. So l- like I said, it's it, it's almost a hundred years old. Oh, There's thank you. Yeah, the one, one on Amazon mention. has kind of a greenish one, greenish color. Okay. Good. Yeah. Another book along those lines. If I'm doing this from memory, but I believe the author was Lawson, and I think the title was. Uh, Ancient Greek religion and modern Greek folklore, or maybe the, yes, the two parts yes. of the title were switched. Uh, also, yeah. I think probably around a hundred years old. Go ahead. Well, I just got to say it's a, uh, it also establishes many uh, connections between modern um, Greek folklore and some of the ancient religions. Really showing a continuity, a very incredible continuity over thousands of years. Um, but he was, you know, also concerned at that time uh, that he was, um, you know, a lot of the people that were really intimately familiar with this folklore were dying out and um, yes. that the stories were not getting passed on. There is a more modern one, and I, I managed to spot it and I took it off the shelf. Uh, Charles Stewart wrote a book called Demons and the Devil. And that, uh, Princeton Press put that one out, and uh, I found even though it dealt with Heos, I believe, um, is it Heos? I don't know. Anyway, it dealt with another island, uh, but uh, a lot of the folklore was very similar to the folklore I was familiar with on uh, Limnos, and he did a very good job uh, of explaining, uh, you know, the folklore and making it uh, real to somebody who didn't grow up in it. And uh, he made a very good uh, point, if I remember, in that uh, what happened with, with Greece is the management of heaven and hell changed, uh, although hell is still called obvious or Hades. Um, but uh, the, the, all the entities in between are still there. So all of the uh, nature spirits that are described in Greek uh, mythology and the lesser uh, gods and the daemonists, uh, they're still pretty much alive in uh, Greek spirituality, uh, but it's just, again, there's a different uh, heaven and there's a different uh, management in the underworld, although the underworld uh, kept its uh, name. And uh, as I move forward, like, you know, and contemplate things and experience things, um, it's my belief that uh, um, the God of the Old Testament is Kronos. And, uh, you know, aside from the Saturday associations, um, there, there are a lot of the, the succession of the heavens in uh, the Olympian history. Um, and the, again, this is a topic way too big for us today. We'll, we'll have to do this another day if you're interested. Um, but uh, 
I've, I've been telling people when they asked about like how I feel about Christianity, I told them that Christ's been a Greek God for like 2000 years. Uh, so I, I personally have no problem. And uh, there are enough uh, mythical uh, antecedents uh, pointing to his father being uh, a Kronos. So that makes sense within the evolving mythology from the days of the Titans uh, to the present. Oh, very interesting. It'd be also interesting, you know, to to know what some of the opinions of uh, Greeks from uh, around the time of Christ thought about. You know, I'm sure they were thinking about connections between the traditional Greek yes. religion and this this newfangled Christianity uh, as well. It'd be interesting to see how they made those comparisons. I'm not a, I'm not familiar with that. Um, um, well, from me- go ahead, I was Tony. just going to say that. Um, from from memory, um, the um, the Greeks had a, a little bit of a problem trying to find an exact correspondence between the god of the Hebrews and their god. I mean, the Hebrews would venerate their god on Saturday, so hence there's a tie-in with Kronos. But then you'd you'd also expect the Hebrew god to be tied in with Zeus, but the day doesn't quite match. Right. So it's yeah, there are all these like tenuous links. Um, also, in one of the PGM texts, there, there's an inference that Eon, otherwise known as Zervan Akarana, is tied uh-huh. in with the, um, with the God of the Hebrews. So, again, no one was quite sure what the exact correspondence was. And Aeon was equated with uh, Saturn in uh, Kronos also in uh, antiquity. Uh, I didn't know that um, Zervan um, was Aeon, and uh, it's such an yes, interesting thing yes. because uh, the Zervanite heresy... Uh, uh, that was something that fascinated me as a kid. So now you've opened up a new line of inquiry. Thank you. Yeah, I, I've actually yeah, been fascinated by, by Zervan Akarana as well. Oh, very awesome. Um, should I ask another question? Or do you guys want to discuss this a little bit further? Did you want to take your um, 7 o'clock break? Uh, would you like to take a break? We could do that. Yeah, I, I can That's use fine. a break. Okay, it's your show. A nice song here, but we're having a conversation, and uh, um, I'm Greek, and you're my guest, so <laughs> your <laughs> needs and priorities take uh, precedence. Um, how about <laughs> just oh, keep no. the uso flowing? Yeah, I've got to say, I'm just waiting for the uso. <laughs> Uh, we'll do Bone Poach Officer, Walls Are Falling. Uh, I never heard that song, but uh, anyway, I'll put that on. I'll talk to you guys in five minutes.
the green man of the spring. Thank the goddess of harvest. Thanks to the fallen king. The three men from the west. Their fortunes for to try. And they did all agree. John Barleycorn must die. Oh, wicker man, oh, wicker man. Like a mighty God you stand You are guardian of our land Take our prayers, oh wicker man Oh wicker man, oh wicker man Like a mighty God you stand You are guardian of our land Take our prayers, oh wicker man
Greetings and welcome back to Pride of Olympus. I am Hercules Invictus, your moderator, and tonight is our Theurgy Forum. Our panelists are Brandy Williams, Tony Merswicki, and Bruce McClellan, who is also known as John Opsipaus. Greetings and welcome back, oh panelists. Greetings. Greetings. Uh, can I offer a little tidbit? Sure. So uh, we were talking about um, Ion or uh, or Eon or Ion uh, and uh-huh. Servon, and um, you know much of the um, Neoplatonic theurgical tradition uh, goes back to Pythagoras. And um, according to uh, history, uh, Pythagoras really uh, learned much of what he knew from uh, Therakude, a philosopher. And he wrote quite a bit about uh, Ion. Um, and tidbit is that uh, Jung, really sort of the, in a the supreme deity that he encountered in his theoretical operation was again my own and um, he talks about that in one of his principal books where the book he said where he basically summed up all his secrets was the, the volume called my own it's got a nice um, picture uh, photo plate of the uh, Mithraic uh, ion um, uh-huh. lion headed uh, right at the beginning. So I thought uh, an interesting connection from sort of uh, very recent uh, theurgical practice down to the very roots of theurgical practice in in the ancient world. Wow, I'm a, I'm on Amazon right now. They, they have copies of it, so that is the one I will definitely be uh, ordering. And I found my copy of Modern Greek of Folklore and Ancient Greek Religion by uh, Lawson. I have it in one volume. Um, in, uh, and correct. It's like a greenish cover. And I'll look for the other ones later. Um, it, does anybody else want to add to that thread, or should I ask the next question? Yes. I'll ask the next question. Okay. Um, now... Um, my own particular path involves uh, calendars because um, uh, Hercules is both Aeneatos uh, Daemonas uh, and also uh, his association with the Zodiac is very uh, much tied to calendars. So my spiritual explorations have in- incorporated uh, calendars as uh, well. And I'll give an example. When I uh, was very active with the Rotary, uh, for a couple of years I followed the Rotary calendar and uh, did something uh, that was related to what the theme uh, was of their month. And since they'd modified their calendar, my first year was like their old calendar, and the second year was their new uh, calendar. So this way I got to experience uh, uh, the essence of what it meant to be a Rotarian. And it was very helpful, and I managed to accomplish a lot because uh, um, I used uh, that calendar to to better understand. And uh, like uh, Tony um, I'm very much into the, the seven classical planets, uh, five of which uh, were actually planets. Uh, and uh, everything I do is tied into that. As you can see uh, on Facebook, I do blessings every day or every few days that are tied into uh, day of the week uh, planetary uh, activities. So calendars are very important to, to me. Um, mm-hmm. To what extent mm-hmm. do, are, do, are calendars a part of your 
um, practice. Uh, Bruce? Well, I, um, in thinking about this, I have to say maybe not too much. Um, okay. So I um, really most of my spiritual practice has been uh, centered more on, on the Olympians, who, of course, have their their kind of monthly or, or a zodiacal association. And um, I have uh, done seasonal uh, sorts of celebrations, uh, usually drawn from the Athenian calendar. But, you know, that's kind of a funny business because uh, yes. the Athenian uh, calendar was so different from the modern calendar. So you're always busy trying to, to kind of correlate the two and figure out why a particular ceremony was taking place at a particular point in time. So I do sometimes work with the planetary spirits, and when I do that, then I try and, and time my operations, uh, you know, to the planetary day and planetary hour. Um, but um, um, I, my practice is not primarily centered on the planetary spirits. Um, so in that sense, I, um, uh, it is not such an important part of my practice. I do sometimes some other uh, kinds of astrological magic, but um, even uh, the more astrological, uh, the, you know, the electional timing of theurgical operations, I, I just haven't found it that important for me, for, for mm-hmm. working for me. Certainly for some other people, I can, I can imagine it would be a much more valuable tool. But, you know, it's a matter of tuning into the divine energies, and uh, there's a number of different ways you can do that. And I uh, haven't found um, the astrological yeah. the most useful one to be. So, um, yeah, I kind of do things when, when I need to do them or when I feel like doing them and don't worry too much about the, uh, the, the day. I, I do pay a little bit of attention to the uh, Hesiodic uh, month, you know, the divine month with, uh, yes. you know, six is Artemis' day and seven is Apollo's day and so forth. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I certainly would not restrict my activity based on that, that either. So that's really uh, about all I I can offer on that. Okay, thank you very much. Tony? Um, Calendars are actually a tricky issue for me. Like you, when I work with the PGM texts, then I work with the days of the week. So I work with the days of the week, and I'm also very cognizant of various astronomical events. So we're talking about the equinoxes, um, the solstices, um, full moons, and anything that happens in the heavens that, um, that, that is significant. However, if I'm doing things, then I really have to use a loop. Um, so the way that the lunar calendar works is, um, I suppose you could see it as starting starting the day of Hecate. That was a during which he would um, sweep out your home, um, get rid of surplus food and the like, and then carry whatever you have, and you would leave them at the crossroads. So that would be an offering for poor people, for animals, um, anyone who's in need. I suppose the... Um, um, the equivalent these days would be to make offerings at a food bank or perhaps um, work in a soup kitchen. Um, it, it's, it's a time of charity. And then um, the lunar month actually starts when the lunar crescent is first visible. So that may or may not be 
after the dark moon. For a lot of reconstructionists, she was the day after the dark moon. The Greeks would actually look, they would look for the present. Notice the same thing in economics as well. Um, in the graph, people are told to climb up on the mountain and look look for the crescent moon so they um, when the um, month is actually starting. In countries like Saudi Arabia, which are all here, they can afford to send the jets to the mountain and they can see if the crescent moon is visible. I'm getting a, uh, a lot of uh, um, uh, th- 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 your sound is breaking up a little bit. Okay. Um, as how's you're talking, that? Better. Okay. Um, so, like I was like I was saying, um, so in in um in some Islamic countries, they will actually send up a jet into the heavens with two imams, and they will look to see. If the crescent moon is visible, if it is, they radio down to say that the that the month has started. If not, then they go up again the following day. So once the once the um the month starts, we have Numenea. Numenea is a day when all the gods are venerated, and there's um a long invocation that can be used to call in pretty well every single deity into the household. The second day is the day of Agathos Daemon. Agathos Daemon was a um a serpent deity who was the um the guardian of the household. And um and the day after that is the day of Athena. Now the thing is Athena was the um tutelary goddess of Athens. So as you can see on the first day you're calling all the gods. The day two of the day of Agathos Daemon is a day just for the household. Day three, the day of Athena, is a day when um when you're seeing your household in relation to the entire city. So you broaden so your focus, broaden your and then and after then that, you your your net your net widens. So day four, you're calling on Heracles, Hermes, Aphrodite, and Eros. Um, day six is Artemis. Day seven is Apollo. Day eight is Apollo is Poseidon and Theseus. Um, but trying to reconcile the two calendars is extremely difficult. Um, so it it tends to be one or the other. But the good thing about the lunar calendar is you just have to step outside at night and you know roughly where you are. So right. if, if there's a dark moon, you, you know it's the day of Hecate. If you can see a crescent moon forming, then you know that the month has just started. When you've got, um, when you've got a half moon, it's half in light, half in shadow, that's the day of Apollo. So there's something incredibly satisfying to be able to, to go outside and tell what day of the month it is um, you feel far more connected to the lunar cycle um, the problem with working with the days of the week is that there's a disconnect um, you're using what everybody else uses but you're not really connected to um, uh, to the sky outside so, so it really comes down to a personal choice but I, I tend to see um, a need to choose one or the other um, the good thing about the, the other good thing about the lunar calendar is that Many, if not most, Hellenic reconstructionists use it. So, if you go online, you see what other people are doing for for each day of the lunar month, how they're celebrating it. 
so it helps to um, connect you with other Hellenic Reconstructionists. Um, otherwise, if you just go off and do your own thing, um, you, you're far more solitary. Very, very true. Thank you very much. That was very thought, uh, well thought out uh, answer and very uh, comprehensive. Uh, Brandy, you know, and it was um, it was Jean Louis who suggested talking about the calendar, yes. and it struck me when he said that that he had written. Um, I, I'm sorry, he's not here because he had written his his book about the calendar that you find in Manilius, which is a, an astrological calendar. And I, mm-hmm. I've done some extensive work with that. So I, I did a year of theurgic practice where I, I um, celebrated, I did a theurgic working for each of the Greek deities, and they map out onto, the Olympians map out onto the calendar through, um, through Manilius, right? Um, so I would do, uh, 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 I started with Hestia, because one should start with Hestia, um, <laughs> Then I, I, I would do uh, an invocation. I, I did a statue. I did an offering a statue, um, which is an agama. And then I would ask the um, daimonas and the, um, the the other spirits to come and give me information about the deity. And then I would go walk around the world and just look at the world in, in those terms and see if I could understand how the deity worked in the world. And then I would come back and do the, the whole ritual of ascent. Um, which I, I published part of it in my, my first book, and I'll, I'll do in the more in the sequel. And I really would like to do that as a workbook, a year of theurgic practice. Um, but what I, what I find, the, the, the thing that I, I did with it, um, Jean-Louis wrote about this too, and he wrote about how, how to do that working. And then he started talking about how to put the deities on your body. So um, I've talked about that a little bit in here in the past, where um, there, are, there are traditions that, that do that, that, that do... Um, Putting putting deities, uh, mapping deities onto the physical body. The the one that I'm working with right now is a, a tantric tradition, Hindu tradition, which um, with the where you put the goddesses on on the body. It's in the Devi Mahatmya. There's a whole prayer that that takes all the goddesses and puts them very very extensively on your body. You know, Sarasvati is on your tongue, and you know it goes on. Um, and I, I found that Manilius kind of gives you that template. Jean-Louis used um, chakras, and I went, oh, you almost got there, you know. <laughs> I really wanted to tell him that. I wanted to talk to him um, and say, look, uh, because what you do with Manilius, Manilius has, um, in his Astrologica, he has a, a chart, right, and he's got three columns. He's got the month, he's got the deity, and he's got the part of the body. And if you take um, if you take them and you chart them, that gives you a, a map of where that deity falls on the body, right? So what I did with my year of theurgic practice was to do the the working to the individual deity, and then end it by placing the deity in that part of the body. And so after a year of theurgic practice, I had a a practice where I could take each of the Olympians and place them on on the body um, as a as a protection and as a, a enlivening. So. That that and that's something that I, I I'm going to write up as a, a paper and send it out to you guys so you can you can have it to, oh, to look at and reference. Yeah, yeah. Like um, I meant to do it before this this call, but <laughs> wrote other things instead. But yeah, I I will I will totally do that because it's a very exciting right. thought, right? And it's a very exciting like um, connection. Um, and and I I don't know I talked about this to Tony a, a couple of years ago and he said he didn't think anyone else had seen that but Jean Louis was working in the same line so I'd love to hear his thoughts on it hopefully he'll join us at our next uh, at our next forum uh, we'll bring it up uh, again uh, when he does um, I use yeah. the uh, uh, the days of the week as uh, they're currently used in our our culture 
because that's the reality that I find myself in. Uh, so Sunday is the sun. It's uh, Heracles. Uh, uh, Monday is the moon. Uh, it's Athena. Uh, Tuesday is uh, Aries and Arati. Uh, I believe, Brandy, once I gave you like a link to these, uh, I had them on my website uh, for a while. Um, Wednesday is um, uh, Hermes and uh, Iris. Uh, Thursday is Zeus and Hera. Friday is uh, Aphrodite and Eros. And Saturday is Kronos and Rhea. And uh, that seems to work uh, fairly well uh, for me. So I've experimented with other uh, systems, um, like the neo-theosophists. They put it in the order of the planets as they currently are, and they rearranged uh, the week. And I had success with that as well, but it didn't resonate as strongly as uh, the system of uh, the days of the week that I grew up with. So, yeah, I I just uh, use that. But I'm always open to experimentation. So I'm looking forward to uh, what you send, and I will play with it. Okay, now I'll ask the next question. Does anybody have have anything they want to add to this uh, question with calendars? No. Okay, onwards. Um, we've been talking about uh, theurgic uh, activism and uh, becoming more involved with uh, the world. And I know that all of you are very involved uh, in the world. Um, What I want to do is I want to get a sense of ways that we could incorporate uh, theurgic activism uh, in our daily activities and and for it to be identified as uh, theurgic activism. Uh, does anybody have any ideas on that? Uh, Bruce? Well, I, I don't know if I'm the best one to, to start on this, but I'll uh, I'll take a stab at it. I, I think, you know, for me at least, um, you know, I, I think what theurgical techniques, and I would include in that divination, um, is just a, an important way of getting advice on how we should be spending our time what's a good strategy, what's the, uh, the, the problem we should work on now. And um, so I think CRG is very valuable as a, as a, um, a tool for anyone who wants to um, have some, some positive effect in the world. And so I would say as a personal tool, you know, we, we, we need to develop it uh, and then also teach it to other people, you know, so that they have that tool available too. And, um, that's, uh, I guess, about the most, most I can offer right now. Okay, thank you very much. Tony? Um, the most um, important thing that's happened over the last few days is the um, burning of Notre Dame Cathedral, yeah. the 800-year-old Notre Dame Cathedral. And, God, there's a lot of feedback, isn't there? I don't have any on my end. Is anybody else getting yeah, feedback? Yeah, I'm getting it here for some reason. I, I don't have anything on. I'm just talking into my cell phone. Anyway, um, what, is what your I was going to point out is... I can try... Uh, what is your area Sorry? code? Sorry? Uh, I can try to reconnect 714. Okay. Let me try... Uh, I'll have you hang up and I'll try to call you back and add you. And if, if, if okay. you're not okay. connecting... Like in a minute, just call back in, okay? Sometimes okay. that can, okay. sometimes that solves the problem. Okay. Okay, let me just copy your number here. 
seven. Okay, let's see. Experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. <laughs> Please stand by, yes. Uh, and uh, I always feel bad about that, but then I, when I look at YouTube videos, even major networks have like, all sorts of glitches in what they're recording, so uh, I don't feel as bad. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, oh, yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm, uh, I've dialed uh, Tony twice, and... Um, I'm not getting a, a feedback from the board. Oh, there we go. Okay, we'll try again. Okay, the board is not connecting, so Tony will have to call uh, back in. There we go. <laughs> Hi, Tony, are you back? Yes, How's I'm back. That sounds really good. There's no echo this time. Okay. If anybody else is experiencing feedback, we'll do the same thing. Um, okay. okay. The, no, that uh, works. Yeah, and I, I used to be in the business. Sometimes it's just the connection. <laughs> okay. Um. So okay, what I'm I was starting to say was that the was that the um the, the most um important event to occur over the last few days was the burning down of the 800-year-old Notre Dame Cathedral. Um, interestingly, within hours of the spire coming down, two of France's wealthiest families pledge no less than 300 million euros in funding for the restoration effort, while the city of Paris itself was also able to mobilize 10 million euros. So um, the money's coming from French billionaire businessman Bernard Arnault. I'm hope, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He's donating 200 million euros. Arnault is the CEO of LVMH, which is the world's largest luxury goods company. He's the richest man in Europe and the fourth wow. richest person in the world. And he has a net worth of $91.3 billion. Wow. Um, so his best-known company is um, Louis Vuitton. You know, they make um, handbags, suitcases, and the like. The other guy to dip into his pocket is Sama Hayek's husband, Francois-Henri Pinault. And his family have promised more than 100 million euros. Pinot is worth 30 billion euros. So between them, they have significantly more money than several European states, such as Croatia, Serbia, Slovakia, and Slovenia. And just to put their donation to perspective, if you had $3,000 to your name, it would be like you donating $10. So even wow. though um, 300 million euros is a huge amount of money, for them, it's not really all that much. The point is, it is really important to restore the cathedral because it's it's iconic. It's part of what Paris is. I mean, if, if you think of what Paris is, it's it's Notre Dame, it's the Eiffel Tower, it's the Louvre, it's all these amazing landmarks. But it is also the people. What would Paris be without the people? There are thousands of people living on the streets. Um, or we have this disaster, which is absolutely horrifying. And we come up with money within days for that. But there's still no money to take care of all the homeless people. 
Um, and I so, had a conversation twice today. That is a that is amazing. So I, I'm I'm paying very close attention. Uh, my wife and I had this conversation earlier today, and she was saying the exact same thing. So so thank you. I, yeah, I, I mean I mean don't get me don't get me wrong. I I think we really need to to um to get Notre Dame back to where it was because it's not just something that belongs to France it be, it belongs to the world it's it's part of world heritage it's it's absolutely magnificent it's beautiful but if they can come up with money that quickly to 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 fix a building um we really shouldn't have homeless people on the streets in Paris we shouldn't have homeless people anywhere, anywhere. you know and you know and, and to talk politics here it's like we're going to be coming up with billions of dollars to build a wall which we don't need on the southern right. border but yet um a short trip to um to skid row seeing all the homeless people living there um we've got medieval diseases coming back um because yes. there are rats there's 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 feces and urine on the streets it's it, it, it's like it's like a piece of a third world country but here in America, we're supposed to be the richest country on the planet. Um, so I really think that we should be doing workings to try to improve things for people, improve things for people in Paris, improve things for people here. Um, I'm not quite sure, perhaps, perhaps my um, fellow panelists can help me, um, who the best gods would be to call on, but I keep thinking we need a maternal energy, you know, maybe Athena or Hera, um, someone to bring bring in um, a, a divine maternal energy to try to look after these people who who are suffering. I hear you loud and clear, and uh, I think Brandy uh, Brandy uh, would be able to answer that uh, question uh, comprehensively, and then I'll add my two cents afterwards. Brandy, <laughs> which which got, uh, which deities? Well, um, yes, um, and and it, it's a system i think all of them um the each olympian would have uh if you're looking at the greek deities would have something to to contribute the the first thought i had um was the the goddess of the earth um gay but we have kind of um we've kind of treated her as a as a object and we've treated her as something that we can do anything to so um we also need to add the qualities of uh, compassion and wisdom, and we would go to Athena for that, and we would go to Zeus for that, and also the the qualities of of being a warrior and doing the things that need to be done, and we would go to Ares for that. So the, you know, writing writing that ritual, I I would do it to to all of the the deities really. Um, I like it's, that. It's sort of an all hands on deck, <laughs> <laughs> an all hands on deck situation. Uh, and uh, the other thing I think, you know, I, I, I'm working in a, a tantric system right now, and the goddess has two forms. She has the fierce form and the benevolent form, and that's kind of an interesting way to look at it, at the world, too. So you, you call on the benevolent form when you want uh, – some some help, some assistance, and you call on the fierce form when you need some some protection. And I think um, again, both of those forms are necessary in in these cases. You you really touch, uh, and just just for a second, you really touch on on my my issue this year, Tony. Definitely, homelessness is the the thing that we're all paying attention to in my in my little neck of the world in in um, in Kitsap County and in Washington State. We have a huge homeless um, issue, and we have a, a tremendous amount of money and a will 
to house people and people are asking for housing, but we're having trouble figuring out how to make that work in our current system. So there's some wisdom that, that needs to, to be brought here too. So I, I would turn again to Athena and Matus um, and, and, and Zeus for wisdom in how to, how to implement the, the desires that we have um, and how to, how to make that work. So that's my, my thought. And then Hercules, you, you, you said you had a thought. Yeah, um, I, I we've been at the uh, Living Theurgy uh, classes, which are pretty eclectic, but uh, uh, we've had uh, uh, deities uh, you know, come to work with us. And uh, one of the workshops I've had and I'm having is to activate the Inner Olympian. So we have our table, which uh, we do uh, various representations on. And one of the things we do is we acting from the divinity within we talk the changes that we'd like to bring about and imagine the world in a better and different way and then we follow up actually doing community actions that will help in whatever way we can as mortals here uh, to bring this about uh, so um, for instance one of the things that we're focused on is uh, optimal wellness and health care so in honor of Hermes, who gives us communication, I'm inviting people who um, know something about that or have something to say about that or are doing something about that to talk about it on the podcasts. Uh, and this way, get that information out. And then I started working with my local community. So I'm the champion of uh, uh, the Tenafly Mayor's uh, uh, wellness campaign. And uh, the uh, president of the Chamber of Commerce came on and told us about uh, businesses that are focused on the wellness of our community, unsung heroes in our community who are doing fabulous things that nobody knows about. Uh, so we're going to be uh, celebrating them. And she's involved in uh, the Northern Valley Greenway Project, uh, which is going to take a lot of uh, uh, unused uh, land that currently has railroad tracks and tires on it and within five years we're going to have all park you know that's going to be all parks where people can you know recreate and enjoy uh, nature uh, more than now and um, Jerry Hocheck uh, he's the um, president and uh, publisher uh, and owner of uh, the Natural Awakenings magazine in, in our neck of the woods. So he's gotten involved, and we're, we're, we're doing what we can. Um, I'm also starting to promote things uh, with wellness uh, that are in our community um, and encouraging people to do the same in their community to just let people know about it because so many great things are, are happening, but nobody knows about them because we're all focused on the negative things that, uh, that are happening. And uh, I'm finding I just started this that I'm overwhelmed by the amount of good things <laughs> that are happening in my community. And all the people are trying to make something happen in this particular area. And because most of my professional experience is in uh, workforce development, uh, I teamed up with uh, a library and I brought back people because uh, I'm a dinosaur. I brought back people from the age of dinosaurs uh, uh, and we're working together to bring our old stuff, you know, into this new reality um, and we've had speakers in from like labor organizations to talk about the gig economy. Uh, employers are going to be coming in to hire people directly. Uh, uh, so it's again, it's little, it's small things, and each of them has their uh, deific sponsor. Um, and uh, we're theurgists, and we're doing this uh, uh, together. So like one of my theurgists, she's involved in local politics. 
Um, so we created a podcast that focuses on her county. And she's been having politicians on also, and people are doing different things. And she focuses on all the positive things happening uh, in her county. So we're getting that information out there through the podcast and through Facebook. And, and again, it's, it's, it's not grand stuff yet, but it, it's, uh, it's a way of taking the deific energies and identifying uh, areas of concern and then doing something, you know, uh, to, to affect that change or to raise that uh, – um, awareness and it, it's very surprising the dialogues like with the uh, with the uh, labor dialogues uh, we had on one of the shows a politician um, who's a mayoral candidate uh, with the president of chamber of commerce and we had the head of a labor organization uh, and because I don't attack anybody on my show and I try to create a safe space where people can like converse the conversation was awesome, and later on uh, when I spoke with the labor leader, he said he never in a million years would have thought that he had so much in common with the president of a chamber of commerce. So these dialogues, these conversations, instead of polarizing, um, allow for conversation. So we start relating on a human level again. We're living in too polarized uh, a world right now, and it's affecting um, everything I see. But focusing on these little things in my uh, community and contributing toward that energy, uh, I'm, I'm finding, you know, again, Anchors Olympus, uh, it, it gives the message that Olympus cares. Um, and how do we know? Because Olympus is active, you know, here, you know, and it, it's becoming more active uh, um, elsewhere. So um, anyway, th- those are my thoughts. And I wanted to bounce, a, bounce them off of you. Uh, to see if you had any uh, insight or wisdom uh, to offer. And uh, I was thinking what Bruce had said about the, the, the divination. Um, if we find, like, homelessness, that's a great thing to focus on. If we all feel strongly about that, maybe we try different approaches to address the homelessness. And um, even though we're all capable of communicating with the gods, rely on Bruce's uh, divination um, to help uh, guide us. So I don't know if that makes sense. It's still kind of churning around inside my head. Uh, but that was... Uh, uh, you know, that, that was kept coming back strongly. So I figured I'd share it. Well, I think, you know, I would suggest we, you know, we, what we believe is that we need to go back to the gods for guidance on these things. And one of the things we can go back to them for guidance on is, well, who's most likely to help me here? Who's, whose aid do I need? It may not be one of the Olympians. It may be some other spirits. Um, And uh, I think, you know, we uh, we this is where we can get these kinds of insights that we need. We can do it through divination, or we can do it through other means of theurgy as well. And um, you know, and the answer for different people will be different too. I think because yes. the gods will work with people in you know that different that, ways. Yeah, different ways. The ways are most effective. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Tony. Um, I, I agree with Bruce that it is important to work out um, who the most appropriate deities or daemons or heroes are um, for a particular project and that divination is important. Um, the thing is that what we're working with is theurgy, which is an ancient practice, whereas the average person in our community, um, when they perform divination, they're going to use tarot or some other fairly modern modality. And I think this is one of Bruce's greatest contributions, actually bringing back ancient Greek divinatory techniques. And I think if you're going to be working with 
with um, theurgy, which is an ancient technique, then you should be working with a divinatory technique, which goes back to the same time period and would have been used by the same people. It, it just seems like it makes for a more seamless fit. Um, of course, if, you, if it doesn't resonate with you, then by all means, stick with tarot. I personally like the Thoth deck. I've been using that for years, but I'm, I'm more than happy to, um, um, to try out some of Bruce's techniques. Perhaps they will, they will work better for me. Awesome. Thank you and so very to, much. Just throw in something here. Um, Bruce, Bruce has a perfectly lovely um, tarot deck also, the Pythagorean tarot, which um, is mm-hmm. my current favorite. Um, and you can still find copies that are shrink-wrecked that no one has touched. So they're, um, while it's out of print, it's available out there. So I, I, I highly recommend it. Do you know where to find it? Well, I'm amazed to hear that. I don't have a lot of shrink wrap. (laughs) Yeah, I found a copy for me and a copy for um, Doug. (laughs) I have to to locate a copy. I've looked for it a few times, but I couldn't find uh, one that was in good condition or or affordable for now. They uh, they, they come by on Amazon. One of my long-term projects is to get that reprinted. That would be incredibly awesome. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yay. Yay. And, Yay. and Brandon, <laughs> you're you're out there active and doing uh, activist uh, type things. I'd love to hear uh, your wisdom. Yeah, that, and I I do, and I um I dedicate what I do um to to Athena really. Um, because she is both wise and, and has that warrior aspect. So if we're looking for a, a specific deity, that, that's the one that I, I go to. Um, in, the, in the Greek pantheon and then Durga in the, um, in the Hindu pantheon. Um, and, and Durga has this, uh, there, there's this sort of understanding that um, we're not fighting um, stuff out in the world, but we're fighting, um, fighting stuff in, in us. You know that yes. that um, everything is one, right? So we're we're trying uh, not to to make enemies or defeat enemies, but but instead to to just kind of make the world better. So that's kind of that's that's kind of where I go with that. Um, in in just in in practice, um, it's interesting. There is this idea that when people go out in public and support. Uh, act, actions that we should um, represent as clergy and wear our clergy gear. So as an EGC priestess, I've, I've gone to my, my bishop and we've, we've developed what an uh, EGC person would wear out there in public if I'm going to present as an EGC priestess. So as a, uh, I might present as a theurgist. I haven't done that, though, because it's not so formal. It's a very, you know, right now we're all talking um, in, in, in very personal ways about what we do as our practice and yeah. it's, not, it's not formal. And I don't really, I, I'm not really suggesting that it, it should be formal, but um, I, I know that there are people who do do that. So, so Hercules, if you have a, a group that you work with, you, you could you could certainly wear your garb. I know the Druids um, have talked about what they will wear out in public. Um, uh, the uh, ancient order of Druidry in America, um, the one of the the people one of the arch druids is my um is my friend so he he talks about wearing a, a green cloak or a, a white cloak out in public and sort of identifying um to people that this is you know this is who we are this is what we do uh, and connecting with other people of faith because it is it, that's a, that's a level that's important too sometimes people show up like you know there will be a, a priest and a rabbi and a, an imam and a buddhist monk and they'll they'll link arms right and um and, and do something and so so that's a that's a way that we could we could 
work as theurgists in public as well. But I don't know that anybody's kind of presented as that. You would pr pretty much do it in, as like part of a part of a, a church, I think. Particularly, um, is there is there an, or, one of your organizations could could think about um, about how to do that? Yeah, right now we don't have an, an organization. Oh, I, we do, but it's not really a formal organization. And uh, um, I'm very much a believer that people should uh, find their own ways of doing things. So uh, our eclectic uh, theurgy that's uh, developing, although it has a foundation on antiquity, uh, a lot of uh, what we do uh, does not rest firmly on something uh, traditional. Um, but everyone's comfortable working with the Greek, uh, the Olympian uh, pantheon. Uh, so we do work with the Olympian Pantheon. There isn't really a, a church um, because everyone has different views on what we're doing here and why we're doing it. And that's okay. I encourage that. Uh, I encourage the exploration and the uh, dialogue and uh, being open to seeing things in, in new ways. Uh, and I tend to dress in ancient Greek uh, um, as influenced by sword and sandal movies uh, fairly often. Uh, and, you know, like when I'm uh, cutting ribbons, uh, uh, welcoming businesses into towns and doing you know, things like that, um, or marching in parades for labor, I, I, it, you know, or just walking to the supermarket. Um, and I'm just as likely to wear, you know, just a T-shirt and uh, um, regular cargo pants as I am to dress up in any uh, unique way. Uh, I, I do parades, like uh, I do uh, the holiday parade, which is interfaith in our town. Uh, so I'm the, uh, whatever they call the leader of the parade. Uh, so people see me in, in the ancient garb, and I don't equate it uh, um, with a particular religion. I do bless my town in the name of Mount Olympus in events, uh, and that's becoming a tradition because I've been doing that uh, for years. Uh, but I'm working with other, I, I, I believe there's only an interfaith, so I've been working with other uh, um, people of faith, even if their faith is different from mine. So um, I'm working with this really awesome church in uh, Creskill. Um, and uh, also I've been promoting the things our Jewish com uh, community center is doing here locally. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm finding ways to work with them so that we can address the needs of uh, people uh, because we all share a common uh, humanity. And where we go after we're here, where we came from before is kind of irrelevant, you know, in the here and now where we're all people. So uh, that's kind of like the approach I've been, uh, I've been taking. Um, so I've been encouraging interfaith. And I've been participating in interfaith things, but not as a uh, belonging to any particular organization. I'm just, you know, Hercules, I'm Olympian. Uh, and I've been open with my Olympianism for very many years. And uh, um that, that's pretty much uh, how I've been approaching. I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah, that was, um, we, we, you were asking for advice. So that was my advice. <laughs> no, I thank you. And uh, we're thinking about uh, forming an organization because we're on the game board. And uh, a lot of times being on uh, a game board, uh, you have to go by what the rules are on the game board. <laughs> rather than your own rules. So uh, uh, because uh, not everybody acknowledges uh, or sees things the way I see them, um, we might have to do a 501c3 and, uh, um, you know, proceed uh, from that perspective. So thank you. Mm -hmm. 
and we're approaching the end of our uh, two hours. Um, it went by very quickly, and uh, I put your contact information on uh, Facebook um, and as much of it as I possibly could. Um, are, is there any way that people can, uh, can contact you or prefer that people contact you? And we'll go back to Bruce. Well, the best well, way to get a hold of me is I have two websites. Uh, one is for uh, my book, The Wisdom of Hypatia. So it's just wisdomofhypatia.com. Wisdom of Hypatia is all one word. And there's a link on that page to uh, send me email. And the uh, other website is uh, for the uh, books that I've written under my pen name, John Opsopaeus. And... Um, that is uh, Opsopaeus, or Opsopaeus, I also pronounce it, O-P-S-O-P-A-U-S dot com. And um, that uh, has the website for my recent Oracles of Apollo book and then also links to my uh, uh, older writings uh, in, in the Bibliotheca Arcana. And, in fact, the Pythagorean Tarot is also out there on the web. So that also has a link for sending the emails. And so I would say those are the two best ways to uh, to get a hold of me. Um, so I'd love to hear from anyone who's interested. I will post uh, to the uh, uh, Hypatia site. I, haven't, I didn't include that, but I will include that uh, immediately after uh, tonight. Thank you very much, Bruce. Tony? In my case, it would have to be Facebook. Either either my author page or my personal page. I, I respond to that fairly quickly. Um, I probably spend too much time on social media. <laughs> it, it is quite addictive. Um, but yeah, I, I think it'd have to be Facebook for me. Okay, I put both of those uh, links there, and uh, I enjoy interacting with you there. So uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, don't go cold turkey on uh, getting off. Uh, um, yeah, the, the feeling is much. mutual. I enjoy I enjoy interacting with you too. Thank you so very much. And Brandy? You can contact me through um, brandywilliamsauthor.com. Um, there's a contact link, and there's a thing that says email Brandy, so it goes um, goes to me. I thought that I had a link to my newsletter, but I, I don't, so I'm going to make that happen in the next day or so um, because subscribing to my newsletter is a really great way to, to keep up with me, and I'm about to send out an issue that, that tells you where I'm going to be all year long, so um, oh, awesome. that's a really good way to do it too. Yep. And then um, I do have a Pathios blog, um, Pathios Star and Snake, and if you look at it tomorrow, you'll see that I've written about Easter and the connection that Thelemites and witches have with Easter. So that, that'll be fun. I'm greatly looking forward to it. Thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to our next uh, Theurgy Forum. And thanks I do, too. Thank you, Hercules. And I, uh, thanks to all who joined us uh, tonight. And uh, be well. And uh, from all of us, uh, joyous journeys and awesome adventures. Olympian blessings to all who have joined us on our adventure. Now, go forth and create a better world, one filled with light and love. On behalf of the pride of Olympus and her crew, may your journeys be joyous.